Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast, where we try and tell success stories from Queen's in Eastern Ontario. In this episode, we have Rob Baker, guitarist for The Tragically Hip. Rob has a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from Queen's, an honorary law degree. The band's been appointed to the Order of Canada, twice inducted to the Canadian Walk of Fame. Rob, many thanks for taking the time to chat. It's a pleasure to be here. So when you look at startups, there's really four stages that people think of. It's the ideation, formation, creation of what's called a minimum viable product. In a band, that would be getting together, finding your sound, finding the right group. Then finding product market fit, which means the sound or the product you're putting out, people want to buy and listen to. And then there's the fourth stage, which is scale and longevity. Once you've got that initial traction, then you're bringing in lots of other people and all kinds of other things come in to scale the organizations. Those are the four pillars we'd like to chat about. When you think of starting up a band, the Tragically Hip, it all comes with starting with the why. Some people think they start up to a startup to make a lot of money. And that is often not enough to carry startups through the difficult times. So in the beginning, what was really the why for the Tragically Hip? It definitely wasn't the money. <laughs> it's an art thing. felt driven, whether it's a, some kind of a character flaw or defect from a very young age, I think we were all drawn to the arts in various ways, music in particular, and it was a drive that we had. I think I saw it as a long-term possibility. That was the fantasy, I guess. But it was just, you know, getting together with friends and playing music, it felt great. And then the next step is you take it out in front of an audience and see if anyone else enjoys it as much as we do. And uh, if they do, then you book another gig. And it just had a very uh, natural growth that way. We spread out. But the, the drive to do it is just a, an internal drive. It was not based on money or need other than our own need to do it. The five friends from Kingston starting this group back in the day, something you do if you didn't get paid at all. Obviously, everybody needs to make a living. But is, is that the kind of thing you loved it so much that this was just something we do no matter what almost? Yeah, I, I've often said I didn't get paid for getting up on stage and playing music. In, you know, in reality, I did. But I felt like I got paid for missing my kid's birthday and spending months away from home and living out of a suitcase and living in hotels and driving down the highway through the middle of the night. That's what I felt I was getting paid for. That part was actually work. Getting up on stage every day was the payoff of the day, and that was fun and play. We, we found a way to turn play and our imagination into something that worked for us as a career. But when you're doing that, you don't always envision all the things that go with it. You know, As a 16-year-old, I envisioned getting up on stage and people screaming and whatever. <laughs> whatever 16-year-old fantasy I had. It didn't envision driving down the highway in the middle of the night in a snowstorm to check into a lousy roach motel and uh, eating lasagna six days in a row. You know, that's... <laughs> yeah, that's putting in the work of uh, gaining traction and getting the word out and just committing to it. So you've got a, certainly something beyond money to be willing to do those kind of things for the craft, for the art. The next topic I'd like to talk about is teams. So when we think of startups, a lot of startups actually fail because of team dynamics. And one of the things that's always struck me about the Tragically Hip is early on, the five of you, once you get the, the final five lineup, said, 
we're all in, we're all equal partners, and that's the end of it. Was that a philosophy started right from day one? Absolutely. We formed out of friendship first, and it was uh, the band was an extension of our friendship. Getting up on stage and playing was an extension of, of that. But it's, you know, the average lifespan of a band is not very long. And you see inevitably what happens in bands, as in any company, I'm sure, someone takes charge. Someone pushes their ideas harder than someone else. It's not a necessarily an egalitarian system or a meritocracy or <laughs> it's sometimes a battle of wills. And we knew that this was a pitfall as uh, music fans, fans of bands. We'd watched many bands come and go, and we knew what a lot of the pitfalls were. And we made our very first album, and the songs were individually credited. So I think Gord Sinclair, who's uh, History 85 <laughs> from Glean's, he had five of the seven songs, and Gord Downey and I had the other two songs. And we just thought, this is not a great way to move forward. And as uh, the band progressed, everyone was very interested in uh, exerting themselves as a, or expressing themselves as a songwriter. And we made this decision after we had recorded our first full-length album up to here, but before we'd recorded it, but it hadn't been released yet. And we had a little meeting and said, I think we need to share everything equally five ways, all songwriting, all money coming in, all money going out. It's an equal five-way split. Harder for Gord Sinclair to swallow because he was the one that was taking the economic hit at that point, but he understood how it would play to our advantage in terms of longevity, keeping, keeping the group together, uh, minimizing those kind of power dynamic conflicts. And, uh, it was the smartest thing we ever did, really. It, to, to keep the band together, that was it. It's always impressive to see the longevity and understanding how that packed early on, where everybody said the collective is far better than the individual. I think it's a great lesson for startups to learn. Get that right at the beginning, and you can, you can weather a lot, right? Yeah, we're Canadians. Individual rights are very important. They don't trump collective rights. Not, not in our band, they don't. Okay, fair enough. You work it out to make a decision as the five of you. Yes. Right. And then everything is shared. Okay. Good clarification. Thank you. When companies are developing their products, and I guess in this case, you're developing your music and you're putting it out there, the product is the sound, the entertainment. There's a, a saying in startups that six or eight months after you put out your first product, and you don't look back at it and kind of wince a little bit. You probably waited too long to release it to start get feedback. Were there times where Early on, you'd put out a song and it's like, was this really ready for prime time? We thought it was. And then six or eight months later or whatever time later, was that a thing in developing new songs and trying them out? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> There's a little bit of wince factor if you're looking in the rear view mirror, but uh, we tried to keep our eyes focused on what was ahead and not spend a lot of time thinking about what we had done. And yeah, the, I guess the product, we never thought of it so much as product, but uh, the product was initially us just trying to create a vibe. So we were playing live music, but we were competing with bands that were all doing something very different. It was a kind of a, the cover, cover band era, 
And if you weren't a cover band, you were playing top 40 hits. There were very few venues for original music until you reached a certain level. So we just thought, well, uh, we'll create a unique vibe. We'll do something that's outside of all that. We'll make our own rules about how this game is played. And uh, that was the product. The vibe we created, the fact that we there were lots of loud, hot, steamy nights and a lot of beer sold and uh, people dancing and having a good time. And that just, uh, it progressed. You, instead of trying to fine tune what we were doing, we were just uh, gaining experience. It was just about getting better at the craft, the stagecraft. And at a certain point, the next step becomes obvious and that's to take it into a studio. And I guess from, from day one, from our very first gig, which was a Queen's University gig, Bachelor of Fine Arts party, we played original tunes. We played a set of 12 songs. We played three sets of 12 songs, and each set of 12 had two originals in it. So that was always part of it. And as the band progressed, we just shifted the ratio until a couple years down, we were playing two sets of 12 songs, and we were playing two covers in each set. It just shifted towards original music. In the startup world, there's some advice from a, a large uh, incubator in California called Y Combinator that says, as you're forming a startup, in this case, forming your band, there's really two things you want to do. Work on your craft, work on your product, and talk to your user. I guess in this case, play to the people. And almost nothing else matters between those two things early on because you're refining your sound and... The Tragically Hip, every acceptance speech I've seen the band make refers back to the fans. And so it's almost early on, there must have been a, well, these are the people that are going to part with some money from their wallets, essentially, but we want to give them this product, this vibe. We better listen to that carefully. Was that a tacit strategy of the group, the band? Yeah, I think there was always an acknowledgement that uh, none of us were particularly uh, genius musicians or songwriters. We were just like anyone who was coming to see the band. We were music lovers, live music lovers. And as such, we had an idea of what we would want to see. And that's what we tried to do. And every show we played, up until the very last tour, every show we played, post-show, we would go out and meet with the fans. People who bought the tickets, talked to the people, what they liked, what they didn't like, you know. Where their where their heads were at, that was always part of it because we always felt they're just music lovers, and that's what we are. We just happen to work work the system to our advantage so that we're on the stage receiving their money, but we're really cut from the same cloth. I think that sense of genuineness has come through with the fans and all your interactions, and certainly the last concert and the broadcast on CBC, that all came through as such a fundamental part of the band, which I assume part of the reason I'm a fan and many people are a fan and the Tragically Hip are the soundtrack of people's lives, uh, particularly in Canada. But the iteration you're talking about is something that's, uh, that the startup world would say, you're kind of refining your product. You're going, putting something out there, listening to feedback and growing as you go. One of the topics, and this is one of the cross-cutting themes, Rob, to ask you about is Networking and the people around you, because you're five guys that are refining your sound, creating the vibe, as you've talked about. Talk about networking, and usually for startups, it's pretty important because you never know who you're going to come across that will be somebody that gives you help at the right place at the right time. Yeah. 
Well, there were different different networks, I guess, we worked. One is uh, you're just trying to get your our music and ourselves out there and meet some people who are willing to get in the boat with us and help us do some rowing, as it were, because it's a problem for a lot of young bands, particularly now. It's not enough to uh, learn the craft of your instrument and the stagecraft and be the songwriter. You're expected to be a studio engineer, expected to know how to market your product, you're expected to do social media, all these things, manage, and we knew we couldn't do it all. We, In the beginning, I tried to do the managing and the booking, and, and I did okay for a startup. But you reach a point where you need help, and you have to bring other people in. And some of that is just getting yourself out into the places where you're going to meet those people. And we did. We met agents who were excited about the band and college bookers and people who wanted to manage the band. And then you start meeting record company people. And if with any luck, you get a little bidding war happening <laughs> or something. Uh, so that's the networking on one side. The networking on the other side is meeting other musicians. And when you're very young in a band, there's a sense that you're really in competition. It's strong. We were very competitive when we were young. And pretty quickly we realized that we're all doing the same thing and that the other people in bands were very much like us. And we became close friends and you share information. You share ideas and knowledge. And it's to everyone's benefit. You've touched on a point that I was going to ask you about, and that was competition. Startups, you'll often see, we're better than company Y because their product has this deficiency or whatever. But startups and bands, I guess, there's lots of room in the marketplace. And if you've got your own sounds, there's really probably no need. So it's interesting that the Tragically have figured that out very early on to say, we're all in this together. There's lots of share of the pie, so to speak, for everybody. So Yeah. Although, although as I said, we were very competitive and in the... In the early days, we set out to dust bands. We'd, <laughs> if there was a band we perceived as competition, we would invite them to share the bill with us, and we would crush them. That's it was it was very competitive. But, you know, after a couple of years, we had built up some self confidence, and we thought, okay, we aren't in competition with anyone else. We just have to hone in on our thing and make it better, and we'll we'll be fine. In the next phase of startups, it's called product market fit. And I don't know exactly what the analogy would be for a band, but this gets to the point where in the, the band's career, you're starting to play bigger gigs. And if you looked at a, at a graph or a curve, it's almost the exponential curve where your sales and adoption start to follow an exponential path. It's a difficult thing for startups to describe. Everybody kind of says, you know it when you've got it. That means like the product is selling itself and you're getting lots of demand, lots of word of mouth. Was there a time frame that you could say for the Tragically Hip, that you were starting to get product market fit, i.e. getting traction, more and more people getting the band to the point where you'd need to start adding more agents and more team members and others because you were starting to play bigger venues and growing. Yeah. By this point, it was, by the point that happened, I think we were kind of almost beyond startup. You know, if we're talking about a startup as uh, getting to the point where we're making albums, yeah, it didn't really happen before then. Once we were making albums, like after we made the first full-length album, by then we had management and agent and 
things start to take on a life of their own. Uh, but if you continue to stick to the basics and do the things that we do, focus in on what we're good at, it will continue to grow. That's, that's the hope. But you're talking about a, what you had mentioned earlier just made me think about the whole marketing thing, trying to find your market. And it wasn't easy for our band. We never really fit into what was happening at the time. We always seemed to be just outside of whatever the mainstream was. So if uh, there was a big uh, roots rock mainstream, we were considered way too hard rock or something for that. If it was more hard rock and glam, we were way too roots rock for that. <laughs> it's just whatever it was, you know, if it was country rock was happening, no, we're too rock. Always just outside. And record companies and the people who were in charge of the business would look at that as a detriment, that this was a flaw in our product. And we never saw it that way at all. We, we saw it as a benefit, that we were allowed to go about our own merry way and continue to grow because we continued to grow and focus in on what it was we were doing. Uh, it kind of baffled the people in charge because they weren't able to shape us or steer us the way they wanted to. We were steering our own ship. Did you say there's a time then where you felt like, okay, we're at a critical mass and so you've exited the startup phase, you're now a business, a company, and onto the growth phase. What period in the band's era, I guess maybe by album or, or venues you were playing, did you start to say, okay, we found our pathway to grow the band. I'm not sure that we, that there's ever really a point where we felt like, okay, we've, uh, we've hit our stride. We've made it. It was all little things along the way, little bits of encouragement. That first time you write a song and you think that's pretty good. You feel like, okay, we're on, we're on the right path, but you never really feel like uh, the goal is in sight. The goal is always just in, in accomplishing that next thing. When we graduated from university, there was a lot of talk of, well, Gord Downey had just finished third year and was slated to go back for his fourth year. I had just finished, Gord Sinclair had finished. And we had a little conversation about, uh, well, we're each making about $350 a week playing music, which in 1986, was was enough. We said, well, you know, we're making enough to keep body and soul together. We can pool our money, we can get a place, we can pay for our van to tour. So let's just ride this and see how far we can take it. That's making it, you know. <laughs> I, I don't think there was ever a point where we felt, yes, we've done it, we've made it. The analogy, I guess, there's always another peak to climb for the band. It was like, okay, we've done that what's next and the trajectory obviously was way upwards as the band progressed eyes always forward we, we spent no time looking in the rearview mirror we were asked to do uh, best of albums and greatest hits albums and we we're always very reluctant to do that we just thought that's going to take a year out of forward push promoting something that happened 10 years ago why would we do that record company wants it because it's a successful business model for them and I totally get it from their perspective but 
because we were able to grow things on our own without that direction and uh, oversight by record companies, I wouldn't say without their assistance, but without their oversight, because we were able to grow it on our own, we were free to do it our way. I think that's an, one of the nice things that fans like about the Tragically Hip is you did build the career your way. Uh, one of the themes, Rob, that people get into for the corporate world now is something called ESG, right? Environment, social, and governance, and turning out to be kind of a bad idea to squeeze the last amount of earnings out of a company by putting your manufacturing offshore or doing whatever. And early on, you started saying, well, we've got a, we've got a platform here. We've got to start giving some back. And that the, it was that another conscious decision early on for the band to say, we've got this platform. We don't need to squeeze every drop of lemon juice out of this lemon. Let's use this platform for something beyond just our financial and our colleagues' financial gains. Absolutely. I think we, you know, we were uh, very lucky to be from Kingston and going to Queens and it gave us a real platform. Kingston's a very interesting city because it's got a, it's got this beautiful higher learning thing going on with Queens RMC and St. Lawrence College, which all gave great opportunities to the band. It also had some pretty divey bars, which were great for the band. It had a biker culture, which was great for the band. <laughs> all these diverse things, uh, gave us a very diverse audience to try and appeal to. And if you can appeal to that diverse a group of people, you're, you're on your way to something. I'm not sure what, but <laughs> so Kingston was, Kingston was so good to us in the beginning that after about two years, we'd sort of played every place we could possibly play here. And we kind of uprooted and went to London, Ontario and did the same thing, figuring that London was kind of like Kingston in many ways. Soci sociologically. But when we made that move, we said, let's not take any more money out of Kingston. We've, <laughs> we've kind of mined it pretty deep for two years. Whenever we play Kingston, let's make it a benefit. And it just seemed like such an easy thing to do. And as uh, the band went on, the benefits got bigger and it became more meaningful. You know, if you can raise a couple hundred thousand dollars for a couple hours work, that's a beautiful thing. And it made us feel good, and it built goodwill in the community. And, uh, you know, why wouldn't you do that? I remember as a kid, my dad would always shop at uh, what is now Campus One Stop, uh, right on Alfred and Earl. And he would go in there, and if he didn't have uh, the money in his pocket, they'd say, don't worry about it, we'll get you later. Or they'd toss in something for free. And he'd say, they... Uh, they have a good will the way they do the business, and because of that, I will always shop there. And something about that stuck in my head. I think everyone else felt exactly the same. You act with good will towards people, and uh, it comes back. What a wonderful, wonderfully great philosophy to say. Kingston was a place that helped you find your find your vibe and find your sound, and so that's that's a great philosophy. That was going to be one of my next questions. Is a lot of the bands stayed in Kingston for most of the career, right? Some moved to Toronto, I think, but nobody, you know, no band, some, you see some bands moving to the U.S. because it's closer to bigger markets and things like that. But speak to being able to have this wonderful career with uh, such an impactful band from Kingston, Ontario. Yeah. We always thought that Kingston was an advantage. Uh, still do. In two hours, I can be, you know, two hours plus, I'm in Montreal or in Toronto 
or Ottawa or Syracuse. From the very earliest days of the band, we charted this path that we're not going to head to Toronto and try and conquer Toronto. That'd be foolish. And we'd seen other bands do it and they, you might work five or six days a week for six months and then you disappear because the cost of living in Toronto, uh, you've overexposed yourself and you've never exposed yourself outside of Toronto. Our philosophy from day one was we'll play all the little C markets and then we'll play all the little B markets. And then once we've got all these core of fans, we'll go into Toronto. And all those people that are fans from the B and C markets, they'll come into Toronto to watch us play in Toronto. And we'll have a sold out show. And that's exactly what happened. It happened again and again and again until management or record company and management people started coming to shows and saying, I've never heard of this band. And yet they're selling out the horseshoe. This is their sixth time selling out the horseshoe. Who are they? And that's the advantage of coming from a small town and and giving the small towns credit. Why wouldn't you play Belleville, Trenton, Coburg, Cornwall? We played them all over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. Rob, we're getting to the ends of our time. Let me ask you one last question. So in companies that grow, the trip tragically up grows from a startup into a band with many different businesses, you've diversified into you know, recording studios and merchandise and licensing and all those kind of things. As, as you're going through the growth stage, we oftentimes see companies get advice from all over the place. You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. You should do that. Was there a strategy the band used to make decisions so that, like you've said, the philosophy of the band was we look straight ahead, not sideways to the back and behind. How, how did you make decisions to, to deal with the compete? Op- I don't know, maybe there wasn't, but competing ideas and noise to say, this is what we should do. How do you decide which, what's to say yes to, what to say no to, and move the direction of the band forward? There were five of us, and we were five equal partners. And for us to do something, we pretty much had to agree. We would never enforce, we didn't have a vote because there are only five of us. There's no point. Can I get a recorded vote on this? You know, there are five of us. And we all knew how each other felt. And if someone had a real objection to something, we didn't do it. We never forced anything down someone's throat. There were lots of times we went against management and record company advice. <laughs> lots of times, like most of the time. But the decisions we made were ones that we collectively agreed on. The things we did and the fact that it had to be kind of a unanimous decision from the band to proceed. Sure, it slowed us down. It slowed our development. It slowed how far we could grow. We did just fine. It's not a problem. You know, it was okay. It meant that the things that we did, we weren't cringing about. We weren't laying awake at night thinking, why did we do that? Why did we agree to do this? Again, a wonderful philosophy. So the five of you essentially minimizes regrets. That's a wonderful way to, to end the comparison between the tragically hip and startups and building a company. Rob, I want to thank you so much for your time and to appreciate, appreciate you taking the time to chat with us on this podcast. Oh, pleasure. Thank you.